This is Novels and Naps, episode 10. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Novels and Naps. I'm your host, Emily. For those of you that are new here, think of this podcast as a low-maintenance book club. I read, comment, and ramble, and you just listen. And if the book or my voice are boring, you can fall asleep, and I won't even know. It's a book club and a bedtime story. My plan is to read through selections from classic novels and provide you with some verbal annotations and whatever random commentary comes to mind. As I've mentioned previously, all of the texts that I'll be reading will be coming from the public domain because student loans, etc. So here's your opportunity to catch up on all those classics you said that you read, but never really did. For the last several episodes, we've been reading Jane Eyre, which is an exceptionally long novel I have discovered since looking at my Kindle, it looks like we're on chapter 28 my Roman numerals aren't great, but whatever. Um, To recap, Jane and Rochester in the last installment of this podcast had their wonderful breakup and Jane has decided to leave. I read most of the chapter without even skimming anything because the scene was pretty great, Uh, but I'm skipping the last several pages because that episode was almost an hour long after editing which is really long and (laughs) ridiculous. Um, So we're going to jump forward to, as I said, chapter possibly 28. Pretty sure that's what it is. So Jane at this point has left Thornfield and has left creepy Mr. Rochester. And she's been traveling. She left out on foot and then took a coach um, with money she had which was not a lot. She left most of her things behind, like pretty much everything Rochester had given her. She left behind. She also at some point had this like dream thing where her mom was telling her, you should go, don't stay here in this temptation. And she was like, okay. So she didn't. So she's in this transitory part of her life where she's about 18 or 19 and she's just left her job and is trying to figure out the next steps in her life at this point. So let's jump in. Two days are passed. It is a summer evening. The coachman has set me down at a place called Whitcross. He could take me no farther for the sum I had given, and I was not possessed of another shilling in the world. The coach is a mile off by this time. I am alone. At this moment, I discover that I forgot to take my parcel out of the pocket of the coach where I had placed it for safety. There it remains. There it must remain. And now I am absolutely destitute. Whitcross is no town, nor even a hamlet. It is but a stone pillar set up where four roads meet, white-roshed, I suppose, to be more obvious at a distance, and in darkness. Four arms spring from its summits. The nearest town, to which these point, is, according to the inscription, distant ten miles, the farthest above twenty. From the well-known names of these towns, I learn in what county I have lighted. A North Midland Shire, dusk with moorland, ridged with mountain, this I see. There are great moors behind, and on each hand of me there are waves of mountains far beyond that deep valley at my feet. The population here must be thin, and I see no passengers on these roads. They stretch out east, west, north, and south, white, broad, lonely. They are all cut in the moor, and the heather grows deep and wild to their verge. Yet a chance traveler might pass by, and I wish no eye to see me now. Strangers would wonder what I am doing, lingering here at the signpost, evidently objectless and lost. I might be questioned. I could give no answer but what would sound incredible and excite suspicion. Not a tie holds me to human society at this moment. Not a charm or hope calls me where my fellow creatures are none that saw me would have a kind thought or a good wish for me. 
I have no relative but the universal mother, nature. I will seek her breast and ask repose. I struck straight into the heath. I held on to a hollow I saw deeply furrowing the brown moorside. I waded knee-deep in its dark growth. I turned with its turnings, and finding a moss-blackened granite crag in a hidden angle, I sat down under it. High banks of moor were about me. The crag protected my head. The sky was over that. Some time passed before I felt tranquil, even here. I had a vague dread that wild cattle might be near, or that some sportsman or poacher might discover me. If a gust of wind swept the waste, I looked up, fearing it was the rush of a bull. If a plover whistled, I imagined it a man. Finding my apprehensions unfounded, however, and calmed by the deep silence that reigned as evening declined at nightfall, I took confidence. As yet I had not thought, I had only listened, watched, dreaded. Now I regained the faculty of reflection. What was I to do? Where to go? Oh, intolerable questions, when I could do nothing and go nowhere. When a long way must yet be measured by my weary, trembling limbs, before I could reach human habitation. When a cold charity must be entreated before I could get a lodging. Reluctant sympathy importuned almost certain repulse incurred before my tale could be listened to, or one of my wants relieved. I touched the heath. It was dry and yet warm with the heat of the summer day. I looked at the sky. It was pure. A kindly star twinkled just above the chasm ridge. The dew fell, but with propitious softness no breeze whispered. Nature seemed to me benign and good. I thought she loved me, outcast as I was, and I, who for man could anticipate only mistrust, rejection, insult, clung to her with filial fondness. Tonight, at least, I would be her guest, as I was her child. My mother would lodge me without money and without price. I had one morsel of bread yet, the remnant of a roll I had bought in town. We passed through at noon with a stray penny, my last coin. I saw ripe bilberries gleaming here and there, like jet beads in the heath. I gathered a handful and ate them with the bread. My hunger, sharp before, was, if not satisfied, appeased by this hermit's meal. I said my evening prayers at its conclusion, and then chose my couch. Beside the crag, the heath was very deep. When I lay down, my feet were buried in it. Rising high on each side, it left only a narrow space for the night air to invade. I folded my shawl double and spread it over me for a coverlet. A low, mossy swell was my pillow. Thus lodged, I was not, at least at the commencement of the night, cold. My rest might have been blissful enough, only a sad heart broke it. It plained of its gaping wounds, its inward bleeding, its riven cords. It trembled for Mr. Rochester and his doom. It bemoaned him with bitter pity, it demanded him with ceaseless longing, and, impotent as a bird with both wings broken, it still quivered its shattered pinions in vain attempts to seek him. Worn out with this torture of thought, I rose to my knees. Night was come, and her planets were risen, a safe, still night, too serene for the companionship of fear. We know that God is everywhere, but certainly we feel his presence most when his works are on the grandest scale spread before us. And it is in the unclouded night sky, where his worlds wheel their silent course, that we read clearest his infinitude his omnipotence, his omnipresence. I had risen to my knees to pray for Mr. Rochester. Looking up, I, with tear-dimmed eyes, saw the mighty Milky Way. Remembering what it was, what countless systems, there swept space like a soft trace of light, I felt the might and strength of God. Sure was I of his efficiency to save what he had made, convinced I grew that neither earth should perish, nor one of the souls it treasured. I turned my prayer to thanksgiving. The source of life was also the savior of spirits. Mr. Rochester was safe. He was God's, and by God would he be guided. I again nestled to the breast of the hill, and ere long, in sleep, forgot sorrow. But next day, want came to me pale and bare. Long after the little birds had left their nests, long after bees had come in the sweet prime of day to gather the heath honey before the dew was dried, when the long morning shadows were curtailed and the sun filled earth and sky, I got up and looked around me. 
What a still, hot, perfect day. What a golden desert this spreading moor. Everywhere, sunshine. I wished I could live in it and on it. I saw a lizard run over the crag. I saw a bee busy among the sweet bilberries. I would fain at the moment have come bee or lizard, that I might have found fitting nutriment, permanent shelter here. But I was a human being and had a human beings once. I must not linger where there was nothing to supply them. I rose. I looked back at the bed I had left. Hopeless of the future, I wish but this, that my maker had that night thought good to require my soul of me while I slept, and that this weary frame absolved by death from further conflict with fate had now but to decay quietly and mingle in peace with the soil of this wilderness. Life, however, was yet in my possession, with all its requirements and pains and responsibilities. The burden must be carried, the want provided for, the suffering endured, the responsibility fulfilled. I set out. Whitcross regained, I followed a road which led from the sun, now fervent and high. By no other circumstances had I will to decide my choice. I walked a long time, and when I thought I had nearly done enough, and might conscientiously yield to the fatigue that had almost overpowered me, might relax this forced action, and sitting down on a stone, I saw near, submit resistlessly to the apathy that clogged heart and limb, I heard a bell chime, a church bell. I turned in the direction of the sound, and there, amongst the romantic hills, whose changes in aspect I had ceased to note an hour ago, I saw a hamlet and a spire. All the valley at my right hand was full of pasture fields and cornfields and wood, and a glittering stream ran zigzag through the varied shades of green, the mellowing green, the somber woodland, the clear and sunny lee. Recalled by the rumbling of wheels to the road before me, I saw a heavily laden wagon laboring up the hill, and not far beyond were two cows and their drover. Human life and human labor were near. I must struggle on, strive to live, and bend to toil like the rest. About two o'clock p.m., I entered the village. At the bottom of its one street, there was a little shop with some cakes of bread in the window. I coveted a cake of bread. With that refreshment, I could perhaps regain a degree. With that refreshment, I could perhaps regain a degree of energy. Without it, it would be difficult to proceed. The wish to have some strength and some vigor returned to me as soon as I was amongst my fellow beings. I felt it would be degrading to faint with hunger on the causeway of a hamlet. Had I nothing about me I could offer in exchange for one of these rolls, I considered. I had a small silk handkerchief tied around my throat. I had my gloves. I could hardly tell how men and women in extremities of destitution proceeded. I did not know whether either of these articles would be accepted. Probably they would not, but I must try. I entered a shop. A woman was there. Seeing a respectably dressed person, a lady as she supposed, she came forward with civility. How could she serve me? I was seized with shame. My tongue would not utter the request I had prepared. I dared not offer her the half-worn gloves, the creased handkerchief. Besides, I felt it would be absurd. I only begged permission to sit down a moment as I was tired. Disappointed in the expectation of a customer, she coolly acceded to my request. She pointed to a seat. I sank into it. I felt sorely urged to weep, but conscious how unseasonable such a manifestation would be, I restrained it. Soon I asked her if there were any dressmaker or plain workwomen in the village. Yes, two or three, quite as many as there was employment for. I reflected. I was driven to the point now. I was brought face to face with necessity. I stood in the position of one without a resource, without a friend, without a coin. I must do something. What? I must apply somewhere. Where? Did she know of any place in the neighborhood where a servant was wanted? Nay, she couldn't say. What was the chief trade in this place? What did most of the people do? Some were farm laborers. A good deal worked at Mr. Oliver's needle factory and at the foundry. Did Mr. Oliver employ women? Okay, I'm going to pause here for a second because this is apparently a conversation and it's in, um, it's in quotes, but it's doesn't read like a conversation. It's just weird. Uh, anyway. 
Did Mr. Oliver employ women? Nay, it was men's work. And what do the women do? I not, was the answer. Some does one thing and some another. Poor folk mun get on as they can. She seemed to be tired of my questions, and indeed, what claim had I to importune her? A neighbor or two came in. My chair was evidently wanted. I took leave. I passed at the street, looking as I went in all the houses to the right hand and to the left, but I could discover no pretext, nor see an inducement to enter any. I rambled around the hamlet, going sometimes to a little distance and returning again for an hour or more. Much exhausted and suffering greatly now for want of food, I turned aside into a lane and sat down under the hedge. Ere many minutes had elapsed, I was again on my feet, however, and again searching something, a resource, or at least an informant. A pretty little house stood at the top of the lane, with a garden before it, exquisitely neat and brilliantly blooming. I stopped at it. What, bin what business had I to approach the white door or touch the glittering knocker? And what way could it possibly be the interest of the inhabitants of that dwelling to serve me? Yet I drew near and knocked. A mild-looking, cleanly-attired young woman opened the door, in such a voice as might be expected from a hopeless heart and fainting frame, a voice wretchedly low and faltering. I asked if a servant was wanted here. No, said she. We do not keep a servant. Can you tell me where I could get employment of any kind? I continued. I am a stranger without acquaintance in this place. I want some work, no matter what. But it was not her business to think for me, or to seek a place for me. Besides, in her eyes, how doubtful must have appeared my character, position, tale. She shook her head. She was sorry she could give me no information. And the white door closed, quite gently and civilly. But it shut me out. If she had held it open a little longer, I believe I would have begged a piece of bread. For I was now brought low. I could not bear to return to the sordid village, where, besides no prospect of aid, was visible. I should have longed rather to deviate to a wood I saw not far off, which appeared in its thick shade to offer inviting shelter. But I was so sick, so weak, so gnawed with nature's cravings, instinct kept me roaming round abodes where there was a chance of food. Solitude would be no solitude, rest, no rest, while the vulture hunger thus sank beak and talons in my side. I drew near houses, I left them, and came back again, and again I wandered away, always repelled by the consciousness of having no claim to ask, no right to expect interest in my isolated lot. Meantime, the afternoon advanced while I thus wandered about like a lost and starving dog. In crossing a field, I saw the church spire before me. I hastened towards it. Near the churchyard, and in the middle of a garden, stood a well-built, though small house, which I had no doubt was the parsonage. I remember that strangers who arrive at a place where they have no friends and who want employment sometimes apply to the clergyman for introduction and aid. It is the clergyman's function to help, at least with advice, those who wish to help themselves. I seem to have something like a right to seek counsel here. Renewing then my courage and gathering my feeble remains of strength, I pushed on. I reached the house and knocked at the kitchen door. An old woman opened. I asked, was this the parsonage? Yes. Was the clergyman in? No. Would he be in soon? No, he was gone from home. To a distance? Not so far, happened three mile. He had been called away by the sudden death of his father. He was at Marsh End now, and would very likely stay there a fortnight longer. Was there any lady of the house? Nay, there was not but her, and she was housekeeper. And of her reader, I could not bear to ask the relief for want of which I was sinking. I could not yet beg, and again I crawled away. Once more I took off my handkerchief. Once more I thought of the cakes of bread in the little shop. Oh, for but a crust, for but one mouthful to allay the pang of famine. Instinctively, I turned my face again to the village. I found the shop again, and I went in, and though others were there besides the woman, I ventured the request. Would she give me a roll for this handkerchief? She looked at me with evident suspicion. Nay, she never sold stuff in that way. Almost desperate, I asked for half a cake. She again refused. How could she tell where I had got the handkerchief? She said. Would she take my gloves? No, what could she do with them? 
Reader, it is not pleasant to dwell on these details. Some say there is enjoyment in looking back to painful experience past. But at this day, I can scarcely bear to review the times to which I allude. The moral degradation, bent with physical suffering, formed too distressing a rec recollection ever to be willingly dwelt on. I blamed none of those who repulsed me. I felt it was what was to be expected, and what could not be helped. An ordinary beggar is frequently an objection of suspicion. A well-dressed beggar, inevitably so. To be sure, what I begged was employment. But whose business was it to provide me with employment? Not certainly that of persons who saw me then for the first time, and who knew nothing about my character. And as to the woman who would not take my handkerchief in exchange for her bread, why she was right if the offer appeared to her sinister or the exchange unprofitable. Let me condense now. I am sick of the subject. A little before dark, I passed a farmhouse at the open door of which the farmer was sitting, eating his supper of bread and cheese. I stopped and said, "'Will you give me a piece of bread, for I am very hungry?' He cast on me a glance of surprise, but without answering, he cut a thick slice from his loaf and gave it to me. I imagined he did not think I was a beggar, but only an eccentric sort of lady who had taken a fancy to his brown loaf. As soon as I was out of sight of his house, I sat down and ate it. I could not hope to get lodging under a roof, and sought it in the wood I have before alluded to. But my night was wretched, my rest broken, the ground was damp, the air cold. Besides, intruders passed near me more than once, and I had again and again to change my quarters. No sense of safety or tranquility befriended me. Towards morning it rained. The whole of the following day was wet. Do not ask me, reader, to give a minute account of that day. As before, I sought work. As before, I was repulsed. As before, I starved. But once did food pass my lips. At the door of a cottage, I saw a little girl about to throw a mess of cold porridge into the pig trough. Will you give me that? I asked. She stared at me. Mother, she exclaimed, there is a woman wants me to give her these porridge. Well, lass, replied a voice within, give it her if she's a beggar. The pig doesn't want it. The girl emptied the stiffened mold into my hand, and I had devoured it ravenously. As the wet twilight deepened, I stopped in a solitary bridle path, which I had been pursuing an hour or more. My strength is quite failing me, I said in a soliloquy. But I think the solilo soliloquy is spelled weird. Okay, maybe that's how you spell soliloquy. Anyway, I feel I cannot go much further. Shall I be an outcast again this night? Will the rain descend so? Must I lay my head on the cold, drenched ground? I fear I cannot do otherwise, for who will receive me? But it will be very dreadful with this feeling of hunger, faintness, chill, and this sense of desolation, this total prostration of hope. In all likelihood, though, I should die before morning, and why cannot I reconcile myself to the prospect of death? Why do I struggle to retain a valueless life? Because I know, or believe, Mr. Rochester is living, and then to die of want and cold is a fate to which nature cannot submit passively. O oh, Providence, sustain me a little longer. Aid, direct me. My glazed eye wandered over the dim and misty landscape. I saw I had strayed far from the village. It was quite out of sight. The very cultivation surrounding it had disappeared. I had by crossways and by paths once more drawn near the tract of moorland, and now only a few fields, almost as wild and unproductive as the heath from which they were scarcely reclaimed, lay between me and the dusky hill. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skim forward a little bit and see if we can get out of this. Okay, so she wanders some more, and then she sees a light. She's like, what is this light? And she follows the light, and um, happens upon a gate... And then she does this. Entering the gate and passing the shrubs, the silhouette of a house rose to view, black, low, and rather long, but the guiding light shone nowhere. All was obscurity, where the inmates retired to rest. I feared it must be so. In seeking the door, I turned an angle. There shot out the friendly gleam again from the lozenge panes of a very small lattice window, 
within a foot within a foot of the ground made still smaller by the growth of ivy or some other creeping plant whose leaves clustered thick over the portion of the house wall in which it was set the aperture was so screened and narrow that a curtain or shutter had been deemed unnecessary and when i stooped down and put aside the spray of foliage shooting over it i could see all within okay guys she's peeking in someone's window I could see clearly a room with a sanded floor, clean scored, a dresser of walnut with pewter plates ranged in rows, reflecting the redness and radiance of a glowing peat fire. I could see a clock, a white deal table, some chairs. The candle whose ray had been my beacon burnt on the table, and by its light an elderly woman, somewhat rough-looking but scrupulously clean, like all about her, was knitting a stocking. I noticed these objects cursorily only in them there was nothing extraordinary a group of more interest appeared near the hearth sitting still amongst the rosy peace and warmth suffusing it two young graceful women ladies in every point sat one in a low rocking chair the other on a lower stool both wore deep mourning of crepe and bombazine which somber garb singularly set off very fair necks and faces a large old pointed dog rested its massive head on the knee of one girl and the lap of the other was cushioned a black cat a strange place was this humble kitchen for such occupants who were they they could not be the daughters of the elderly person at the table for she looked like a rustic and they were all delicacy and cultivation i had nowhere seen such faces as theirs and yet as i gazed on them i seemed intimate with every liniment i cannot call them handsome they were too pale and grave for the word as they each bent over a book they looked thoughtful almost to severity a stand between them supported a second candle and two great volumes to which they frequently referred comparing them seemingly with the smaller books they held in their hands like people consulting a dictionary to aid them in the task of translation this scene was as silent as if all the figures had been shadows and the firelight apartment a picture so hushed was it i could hear the cinders fall from the grate the clock tick in its obscure corner and i even fancied i could distinguish the click click of the woman's knitting needles when therefore a voice broke the strange stillness at last it was audible enough to me listen diana said one of the absorbed students franz and old daniel are together in the night time and franz is telling a dream from which he has awakened in terror listen and in a low voice she read something of which not one word was intelligible to me for it was in an unknown tongue neither french nor latin whether it was greek or german i could not tell that is strong she said when she had finished i relish it the other girl who had lifted her head to listen to her sister repeated while she gazed at the fire a line of what had been read at a later day i knew the language in the book therefore i will here quote the line though when i first heard it it was only like a stroke on sounding brass to me conveying no meaning Da trat hover einer an zu sehen wie die Sternen nacht. Good, good, she exclaimed, while her dark and deep eyes sparkled. There you have a dim and mighty archangel fitly set before you. The line is worth a hundred pages of Fustian. Ich wage die Gedanken in der Schale meines Zornes und die Werke mit dem Gewichte meines Grimms. I like it. Both were again silent. Okay, so the language is German, by the way, not Greek. Is there only country where they talk in that way? asked the old woman looking up from her knitting yes hannah a far larger country than england where they talk in no other way well for sure case i not how they can understand to one another if either o you went there you could tell what they said i guess we could probably tell something of what they said but not all for we are not as clever as you think us hannah we don't speak german and we cannot read it without a dictionary to help us and what good does it do you we mean to teach it sometime or at least the elements as they say and then we shall get more money than we do now very like but give a word studying you've done enough for to-night i think we have at least i'm tired mary are you mortally after all it's tough work fagging away at a language with no master but a lexicon it is especially such a language as this crowd to a glorious deutsch i wonder when st john will come home oh st john 
Surely he will not be long now. It is just ten. Looking at a little gold watch she drew from her girdle. It rains fast, Hannah. Will you have the goodness to look at the fire in the parlor? The woman rose. She opened a door, through which I dimly saw a passage. Soon I heard her stir a fire in an inner room. She presently came back. Okay, so Jane is, is peering through these people's window of their little cottage, and it's nighttime, so I assume it's pretty dark, and the only light is two candles, so I'm impressed by her, her ability to see all of these things so clearly and to really hear everything that's going on, and it's not weird at all that she's just creeping outside their window. Um, yeah, not concerning at all. Anyway... Ah, childer, said she, it fair troubles me to go into yon room now. It looks so lonesome with a chair empty and set back in a corner. She wiped her eyes with her apron. The two girls, grave before, look sad now. But he is in a better place, continued Hannah. We shouldn't wish him here again, and then nobody need to have a quieter death, nor he had. You say he never mentioned us, inquired one of the ladies. He hadn't time, Baron. He was gone in a minute, was your father. He had been a bit ailing like the day before, but not to signify, and when Mr. St. John asked if he would like either of you to be sent for, he fair laughed at him. He began again with a bit of a heaviness in his head the next day, that is, a fortnight sin, and he went to sleep and never wakened. He were a most stark when your brother went into chamber and found him. Ah, childer, that's to last a told stock for ye and Mr. St. John is like of a different sort to them that's gone, for all your mother were mitch in your way, and a most as book learned. She were the picture of ye, Mary. Diana's more like your father." I thought them so similar I could not tell where the old servant, for such I now concluded her to be, saw the difference. Well, to be fair, the servant in his room that's better lit and knows them. Both were fair-complexioned and slenderly made. Both possessed faces full of distinction and intelligence. One, to be sure, had hair a shade darker than the other, and there was a difference in their style of wearing it. Mary's pale brown locks were parted and braided smooth. Diana's duskier tresses covered her neck with thick curls. The clock struck ten. "'You'll want your supper, I am sure,' observed Hannah, "'and so will Mr. St. John when he comes in. "'Are they having su "'Why are they having supper at ten o'clock at night?' "'Um, okay, whatever. They, "'They do whatever they want, and Jane just creepily watches them. "'And she proceeded to prepare the meal. "'The ladies rose. "'They seemed about to withdraw to the parlor. "'Till this moment I had been so intent on watching them. "'Their appearance and conversation had excited me "'in so keen an interest. "'In so keen an interest, I had half forgotten my own wretched position. "'Now it recurred me. "'More desolate, more desperate than ever, it seemed from contrast.' And how impossible did it appear to touch the inmates of this house with concern on my behalf, to make them believe in the truth of my wants and woes, to induce them to vouchsafe a rest for my wanderings. As I groped out the door and knocked at it hesitantly, I felt that last idea to be a mere chimera. Hannah opened. "'What do you want?' she inquired in a voice of surprise as she surveyed me by the light of the candle she held. "'May I speak to your mistresses?' I said. "'You had better tell me what you have to say to them. Where do you come from?' "'I am a stranger. What is your business here at this hour?' I want a night's shelter in an outhouse, or anywhere, and a morsel of bread to eat. Distrust, the very feeling I dreaded, appeared in Hannah's face. I'll give you a piece of bread, she said after a pause, but we can't take an vagrant to lodge. It isn't likely. Do let me speak to your mistresses. No, not I. What can they do for you? You should not be roving about now. It looks very ill. But where shall I go if you drive me away? What shall I do? I won't warrant you know where to go and what to do. Mind you don't do wrong, that's all. Here is a penny, now go. A penny cannot feed me, and I have no strength to go farther. Don't shut the door. Oh, don't, for God's sake. I must. The rain is driving in. Tell the young ladies. Let me see them. Indeed, I will not. You are not what you ought to be, or you wouldn't make such a noise. Move off. But I must die if I am turned away. Not you. 
I'm feared you have some ill plans agate that bring you about folks' house at this time of night. If you've any followers, housebreakers or such like, anywhere near, you may tell them we are not by ourselves in the house. We have a gentleman and dogs and guns. Here the honest but inflexible servant clapped the door to and bolted it within. Speaking of housebreakers and whatnot, my car got broken into the other weekend. Cool. Good times. This was the climax. A pang of exquisite suffering, a throw of true despair, ranked and heaved my heart. Worn out indeed I was. Not another step could I stir. I sang on the wet doorstep, I groaned, I wrung my hands. I wept in utter anguish. Oh, this spectre of death, oh, this last hour approaching in such horror. Alas, this isolation, this banishment from my kind. Not only the anchor of hope, but the footing of fortitude was gone, at least for a moment. But the last I soon endeavored to regain. I can but die, I said. And I believe in God. Let me try to wait his will in silence. These words I not only thought, but uttered, and thrusting back all my misery into my heart, I made an effort to compel it to remain there, dumb and still. All men must die, said a voice quite close at hand, but all are not condemned to meet a lingering and premature doom, such as yours would be if you perished here of want. Who or what speaks? I asked, terrified at the unexpected sound, and incapable now of deriving from any occurrence a hope of aid. A form was near, what form, the pitch-dark night, and my enfeebled vision prevented me from distinguishing. With a loud long knock, the newcomer appealed to the door. Is it you, Mr. St. John? cried Hannah. Yes, yes, open quickly. Well, how wet and cold you must be, such a wild night as it is. Come in, your sisters are quite uneasy about you, and I believe there are bad folks about. There has been a beggar woman, I declare she has not gone yet. Lay down there, get up, for shame, move off, I say. Hush, Hannah, I have a word to say to the woman. You've done your duty in excluding. Now let me do mine in admitting her. I was near and listened to both you and her. I think this is a peculiar case. I must at least examine it. Young woman, rise and pass before me into the house. With a difficulty, I obeyed him. Presently, I stood within that clean, bright kitchen, on the very hearth, trembling, sickening, conscious of an aspect in the last degree ghastly wild and heather beaten. The two ladies, their brother Mr. St. John, the old servant, were all gazing at me. "'St. John, who is it?' I heard one ask. "'I cannot tell. I found her at the door,' was the reply. "'She does look white,' said Hannah. "'As white as clay or death,' was responded. "'She will fall. Let her sit.' And indeed my head swam. I dropped, but a chair received me. I still possessed my senses, though just now I could not speak. Perhaps a little water would restore her. Hannah, fetch some. But she has warned nothing, how very thin and how very bloodless. A mere specter. Is she ill or only famished? Famished, I think. Hannah, is that milk? Give it to me in a piece of bread. Diana, I knew her by her long curls, which I saw drooping between me and the fire as she bent over me, broke some bread, dipped it in milk, and put it to my lips. Her face was near mine. I saw there was pity in it, and I felt sympathy in her hurried breathing. In her simple words, too, the same bomb-like emotion spoke. Try to eat. Yes, try, repeated Mary gently, and Mary's hand removed my sodden bonnet and lifted my head. I tasted what they offered me, feebly at first, eagerly soon. Not too much at first. Restrain her, said the brother. She has had enough, and he withdrew the cup of milk and the plate of bread. A little more, St. John. Look at the avidity in her eyes. No more at present, sister. Try if she can speak now. Ask her name. I felt I could speak, and I answered, My name is Jane Elliot. Anxious as ever to avoid discovery, I had before resolved to assume an alias. And where do you live? Where are your friends? I was silent. Can we send for anyone you know? I shook my head. What account can you give of yourself? Somehow, now that I had once crossed the threshold of this house, and once was brought face to face with its owners, I felt no longer outcast, vagrant, and disowned by the wide world. I dared to put off the medicant to resume my natural manner and character. I began once more to know myself. And when Mr. St. John demanded an account which at present I was far too weak to render, I sat after a brief pause. Sir, I can give you no details tonight. But what then, said he, do you expect me to do for you? Nothing, I replied. My strength sufficed for but short answers. 
Diana took the word. Do you mean, she asked, that we have now given you what aid you require, and that we may dismiss you to the moor in the rainy night? I looked at her. She had, I thought, a remarkable countenance, instinct both with power and goodness. I took sudden courage, answering her compassionate gaze with a smile. I said, I will trust you. If I were a masterless and stray dog, I know that you would not turn me from your hearth tonight, as it is I really have no fear. Do with me and for me as you like, but excuse me for much discourse. My breath is short. I feel a spasm when I speak. All three surveyed me, and all three were silent. Hannah, said Mr. St. John at last, let her sit there at present and ask her no questions. In ten minutes more, give her the remainder of that milk and bread. Mary and Diana let us go into the parlor and talk the matter over. They withdrew. Very soon, one of the ladies returned. I could not tell which. A kind of pleasant stupor was stealing over me as I sat by the genial fire. In an undertone, she gave some directions to Hannah. Ere long, with the servant's aid, I contrived to mount a staircase. My dripping clothes were removed. Soon a warm, dry bed received me. I thanked God, experienced amidst unutterable exhaustion, a glow of grateful joy, and slept. And now we have arrived at what I'm going to call chapter 29, because that's what comes after 28. And I'm pretty sure that three X's in a row means 30. So, chapter 29. The recollection of about three days and nights succeeding this is very dim in my mind. I can recall some sensations felt in that interval, but a few thoughts framed and no actions performed. I knew I was in a small room and in a narrow bed. To that bed I seemed to have grown. I lay on it motionless as a stone, and to have torn me from it would have been almost to kill me. I took no note of the lapse of time, of the change from morning to noon, from noon to evening. I observed when anyone entered or left the apartment. I could even tell who they were. I could understand what was said when the speaker stood near me, but I could not answer. To open my lips or move my limbs was equally impossible. Hannah, the servant, was my most frequent visitor. Her coming disturbed me. I had a feeling that she wished me away, that she did not understand me or my circumstances, that she was prejudiced against me. Diana, <laughs> Diana. Diana and Mary appeared in the chamber once or twice a day. They would whisper sentences of this sort at my bedside. It is very well we took her in. Yes, she would certainly have been found dead at the door in the morning had she been left out all night. I wonder what she has gone through. Strange hardships, I imagine. Poor, emaciated, pallid wanderer. She is not an uneducated person, I should think, by her manner of speaking. Her accent was quite pure, and the clothes she took off, though splashed and wet, were little worn and fine. She has a peculiar face, fleshless and haggard as it is. I rather like it, and when in good health and animated, I could fancy her physiognomy would be agreeable. Never once in their dialogues did I hear a syllable of regret, of regret at the hospitality they had extended to me, or of suspicion of or aversion to myself. I was comforted. Mr. St. John came but once. He looked at me and said my state of lethargy was the result of reaction from excessive and protracted fatigue. He pronounced it needless to send for a doctor. Nature, he was sure, would manage best. Left to herself. He said every nerve had been overstrained in some way, and the whole system must sleep torpid a while. Because he's, he's a doctor. Okay, cool. There was no disease. He imagined my recovery would be rapid enough when once commenced. These opinions he delivered in a few words in a quiet, low voice, and added after a pause in the tone of a man little accustomed to expansive comment. Rather an unusual physiognomy, certainly, not indicative of vulgarity or degradation. Far otherwise, responded Diana. To speak truth, St. John, my heart rather warms to the poor, poor little soul. I wish we may be able to benefit her permanently. That is hardly likely, was the reply. You'll find she is some young lady who has had a misunderstanding with her friends and has probably injudiciously left them, 
We may perhaps succeed in restoring her to them if she is not obstinate, but I traced lines of force in her face which made me skeptical of her tractability. He stood considering me some minutes, then added, She looks sensible, but not at all handsome. She is so ill, St. John. Ill or well, she would always be plain. The grace and harmony of beauty are quite wanting in those features. Who, who is this guy? Well, I know who this guy is because I've read this before, but God, the dudes in this, uh, the dudes in this world are so unpleasant. Anyway, on the third day, I was better. On the fourth, I could speak, move, rise in bed and turn. Hannah had brought me some gruel and dry toast about, as I suppose, the dinner hour. I had eaten with relish. The food was good, void of the feverish flavor which had hitherto poisoned what I had swallowed. When she left me, I felt comparatively strong and revived. Ere long, satiety of repose and desire for action stirred me. I wished to rise, but what could I put on? Only my damp and bemired apparel, in which I had slept on the ground and fallen in the marsh. I felt ashamed to appear before my benefactor so clad. I was spared the humiliation. On a chair by the bedside were all my own things, clean and dry. My black silk frock hung against the wall. The traces of the bog were removed from it. The creases left by the wet smoothed it out. It was quite decent. My very shoes and stockings were purified and rendered presentable. There were the means of washing in the room, and a comb and brush to smooth my hair. After a weary process in resting every five minutes, I succeeded in dressing myself. My clothes hung loose on me, for I was much wasted, but I covered deficiencies with a shawl and once more, clean and respectable-looking, no speck of the dirt nor trace of disorder I so hated, and which seemed so to degrade me, left. I crept down a stone staircase with the aid of the banisters to a narrow low passage and found my way presently to the kitchen. It was full of the fragrance of new bread and the warmth of a generous fire. Hannah was baking. Prejudices, it is well known, are most difficult to eradicate from the heart whose soil has never been loosened or fertilized by education. They grow there, firm as weeds among stones. Hannah had been cold and stiff indeed at the first. Latterly, she had begun to relent a little, and when she saw me come in, tidy and well-dressed, she even smiled. "'What you have got up to?' she said. "'You are better, then. You may sit you down in my chair on the hearthstone, if you will.' She pointed to the rocking chair. I took it. She bustled about, examining me every now and then with the corner of her eye. Turning to me, she took some loaves from the oven. She asked bluntly, "'Did you ever go a-begging before you came here?' I was indignant for a moment, but remembered that anger was out of the question, and that I had indeed appeared as a beggar to her. I answered quietly, but still not without a certain marked firmness. You are mistaken in supposing me a beggar. I am no beggar any more than yourself or your young ladies. After a pause, she said, I don't understand that. You've like no house, nor no brass, I guess. The want of house or brass, by which I suppose you mean money, does not make a beggar in your sense of the word. Are you book-learned? she inquired presently. Yes, very. "'But you've never been to a boarding school. "'I was at a boarding school eight years.' "'She opened her eyes wide. "'Whatever can you keep yourself for, then?' "'I have kept myself, and I trust shall keep myself again. "'What are you going to do with these gooseberries?' "'I inquired as she brought out a basket of the fruit. "'Make them into pies. "'Give them to me, and I'll pick them. "'Nay, I don't want you to do not. "'But I must do something. "'Let me have them.' "'She consented, and she even brought me a clean towel "'to spread over my dress, "'lest, as she said, I should mucky it.' "'You've not been used to servants' work, I see by your hands,' she remarked. "'Happen you've been a dressmaker?' "'No, you are wrong, and now never mind what I have been. "'Don't trouble your head further about me. "'But tell me the name of the house where we are.' "'Some calls it Marsh End, and some calls it Moor House. "'And the gentleman who lives here is called Mr. St. John?' "'Nay, he doesn't live here. He is only staying a while. "'When he is at home, he is in his own parish at Morton.' "'That village a few miles off?' "'Aye. And what is he?' "'He is a parson.' 
I remembered the answer of the old housekeeper at the parsonage when I had asked to see the clergyman. This, then, was his father's residence? Aye, old Mr. Rivers lived here. And his father and grandfather and great-great-grandfather afore him. The name, then, of that gentleman is Mr. St. John Rivers? Aye, St. John is like his cursed name. And his sisters are called Diana and Mary Rivers? Yes. Their father is dead, dead three weeks and of a stroke. They have no mother. The mistress had been dead this money a year. Have you lived with the family long? I lived here thirty year. I nursed them all three. Guys, so his name is St. John. Like, not John after St. John. Straight up St. John. Because, yeah. Because that's how we do things. Anyway. That proves you must have been an honest and faithful servant. I will say so much for you, though you have had the incivility to call me a beggar. Why is Jane so rude? Why are they all so rude to the servants? Anyway, she again regarded me with a surprised stare. I believe, she said, I was quite mistaken in my thoughts of you, but there are so many cheats goes about. You mum forgive me. And though, I continued rather severely, you wish to return me from the door on a night when you should not have shut out a dog. Well, it was hard, but what can a body do? I thought more of the children nor myself, poor things. They've lacked nobody to take care of them but me. I'm like to look sharpish. I maintained a grave silence for some minutes. You may not think too hardly of me, she said. She again remarked. But I do think hardly of you, I said, and I'll tell you why. Not so much because you refused to give me shelter or regard me as an impostor, as because you just now made it a species of reproach that I had no brass and no house. Some of the best people that ever lived have been as destitute as I am, and if you are a Christian, you ought not to consider poverty a crime. No more I ought, said she. Mr. St. John tells me so too. And I see I were wrong, but I've clear a definite notion on you now what I had. You look a right down, decent little crater. <laughs> okay, I, I think that's, that's... So it's not written in plain English. Um, You look a right down, decent little critter. There we go. That will do. I forgive you now. Shake hands. God, Jean, what the hell? She put her flowery and horny hand into mine. Another and heartier smile illumined her fa rough face, and from that moment we were friends. Hannah was evidently fond of talking, which is fantastic, because Jane never shuts up. While I picked the fruit, and she made the paste for the pies, she proceeded to give me sundry details about her deceased master and mistress, and the child or as she called the young people. Old Mr. Rivers, she said, was a plain man enough, but a gentleman, and out of an ancient family as could be found. Marshen had belonged to the Rivers ever since it was a house, and it was, she affirmed, a boon two hundred year old for all that looked but a small humble place not to compare with Mr. Oliver's grand house down in Mortonvale, but she could remember blah, 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 Mr. St. John went to college. Um, the girls are going to be governesses, and I guess they're going to try and teach German even though they don't speak it. They've traveled to London. Blah, 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 blah. And then it is revealed that um, the siblings have all gone on a walk. Here we go. They returned within the time Hannah had allotted them. They entered by the kitchen door. Mr. St. John, when he saw me, merely bowed and passed through. The two ladies stopped. Mary, in a few words, kindly and calmly expressed the pleasure she felt in seeing you well enough to be able to come down. Diana took my hand. She shook her head at me. You should have waited for my leave to descend, she said. You still look very pale and so thin. Poor child. Poor girl. Diana had a voice toned to my ear like the cooing of a dove. She possessed eyes whose gaze I delighted to encounter. Her whole face seemed to me full of charm. Mary's countenance was equally intelligent. Her features equally pretty, but her expression was more reserved and her manners, though gentle, more distant. 
Diana looked and spoke with a certain authority. She had a will, evidently. It was my nature to feel pleasure in yielding to an authority supported like hers, and to bend where my conscience and self-respect permitted to an active will. "'And what business have you here?' she continued. "'It is not your place. Mary and I sit in the kitchen sometimes, because at home we like to be free, even to license. But you are a visitor and must go into the parlour.' "'I am very well here.' "'Not at all, with Hannah bustling about and covering you with flour. "'Besides, the fire is too hot for you,' interposed Mary. "'To be sure,' added her sister. "'Come, you must be obedient.' And still holding my hand, she made me rise and led me into the inner room. "'Sit there,' she said, placing me on the sofa. "'Will we take our things off and get the tea ready? "'It is another privilege we exercise in our little moorland home. "'To prepare our own meals when we are so inclined, "'or when Hannah is baking, brewing, washing, or ironing.' She closed the door, leaving me solace with Mr. St. John, who sat opposite, a book or newspaper in his hand. I examined first the parlor, and then its occupant. <sighs> and she describes the parlor. Um, there's antique portraits in the parlor, not a lot of superfluous ornaments. Um, and then she describes Mr. St. John. He's young, perhaps 28 to 30, tall, slender, face riveted the eye, Greek face, very pure in outline, straight classic nose, Athenian mouth and chin. Um... Let's see, blue eyes with brown eyelashes, big, huge, high forehead uh, that is colorless as ivory, um, and some of his fair hair is falling in his face. Um, yeah. And then the sisters come back in and they, they bring her some food, um, and she eats it. You are very hungry, he said. I am, sir. It is my way, it always was my way, by instinct, ever to meet the brief with brevity, the direct with plainness. It is well for you that a low fever has forced you to abstain for the last three days. There would have been danger in yielding to the cravings of your appetite at first. Now you may eat, though still not immoderately. Um, this guy's a, a parson, not a doctor, but he likes to play a doctor. I trust I shall need not eat long at your expense, was my very clumsily contrived, unpolished answer. No, he said coolly. When you have indicated to us the residence of your friends, we can write to them, and you may be restored to the home. That, I must plainly tell you, is out of my power to do, being absolutely without home and friends. The three looked at me, but not distrustfully. Um, even though that's weird. I felt there was no suspicion in their glances. There was more of curiosity. I speak particularly of the young ladies. St. John's eyes, though clear enough in a literal sense and a figurative one, were difficult to fathom. He seemed to use them rather as instruments to search other people's thoughts than as agents to reveal his own. The which combination of keenness and reserve was considerably more calculated to embarrass than to encourage. Do you mean to say, he asked, that you are completely isolated from every connection? I do. Not a tie links me to any living thing, not a claim do I possess to admittance under our name roof in England. A most singular position at your age. Here I saw his glance directed to my hands which were folded on the table before me. I wondered what he sought there. His words soon explained the quest. You have never been married? You are a spinster? Diana laughed. Why, she can't be above seventeen or eighteen years old, St. John, said she. I am near nineteen, but I am not married, no. I felt a burning glow mount to my face, for bitter and agitating recollections were awakened by the illusion to marriage. They also the embarrassment and the emotion. Diana and Mary relieved me by turning their eyes elsewhere than to my crimson visage, but the colder and sterner brother continued to gaze till the trouble he had excited forced out tears as well as color. "'Where did you last reside?' he now asked. "'You are too inquisitive, St. John,' murmured Mary in a low voice, but he leaned over the table and required an answer by a second firm and piercing look. "'The name of the place where, and of the person with whom I lived, is my secret,' I replied concisely. "'Which, if you like, you have, in my opinion, a right to keep, both from St. John and every other questioner,' remarked Diana. "'Yet if I know nothing about you or your history, I cannot help you,' he said, "'and you need help, do you not?' 
I need it, and I seek it so far, sir, that some true philanthropist will put me in my way of getting work which I can do, and the remuneration for which will keep me, if but in the barest necessities of life. I know not whether I am a true philanthropist, yet I am willing to aid you to the utmost of my power in a purpose so honest. First, then, tell me what you have been accustomed to do, and what you can do. I had now swallowed my tea. I was mightily refreshed by the beverage, as much so as to a giant with wine. Okay, so wine is like tea to a giant. It gave new tone to my unstrung nerves, and enabled me to address this penetrating young judge steadily. Mr. Rivers, I said, turning to him and looking at him as he looked at me, openly and without diffidence, you and your sisters have done me a great service. The greatest man can do his fellow being. You have rescued me by your noble hospitality from death. This benefit conferred blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm an orphan, the daughter of a clergyman. My parents died before I could know them. I was brought up a dependent, educated in a charitable institution. I will even tell you the name of the establishment where I passed six years as a pupil and two as a teacher, Lowood Orphan Asylum Shire. You will have heard of it, Mr. Rivers. The Reverend Robert Brocklehurst is the treasurer. I have heard of Mr. Brocklehurst, and I have seen the school. I left Lowood nearly a year since to become a private governor. I obtained a good situation and was happy. This place was obliged to leave four days before I came here. The reason of my departure I cannot and ought not to explain. It would be useless, dangerous, and would sound incredible. No blame attached to me. I am as free from culpability as any one of you three. Uh, miserable I am and must be for a time, for the cast task refuge drove me from a house. I had found blah, 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 blah. Um, to this neighborhood, then, I came quite destitute. I slept two nights in the open air. We know that. Um, blah, blah, blah. Don't make her talk any more now, St. John, said Diana as I paused. She's evidently not yet fit for excitement. Come to the sofa and sit down now, Miss Elliot. I gave an involuntary half-start at hearing the alias. I had forgotten my new name. Mr. Rivers, whom nothing seemed to escape, noticed it at once. You said your name was Jane Elliot, he observed. I did say so, and it is the name by which I think it expedient to be called at present. But it is not my real name, and when I hear it, it sounds strange to me. Your real name you will not give? No, I fear discovery above all things, and whatever disclosure would lead to it, I avoid. You're quite right, I am sure, said Diana. Now do, brother, let her be at peace a while. Blah, 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 they talk about her being dependent on them. Blah, 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 they decide that she's going to stay there with them. And then he go back, goes back to um, reading his book. And then she hangs out with them. And they read books together and go on walks. And it's chapter 30. And that is all I am feeling like reading right now because this book is so long, but we are more than three quarters of the way through. And so this is, this is where I'm going to leave you guys. She is in a new place. She wandered and wandered and landed at some door and looked through with candles. Now uh, she's hanging out with uh, St. John and his sisters and a uh, good old Hannah, the servant. And what's going to happen next? I know, but well, eh, eh. I know what's going to happen next, but I'm not going to tell you until later. All right. Thank you for listening, friends. Sleep well.